This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Judge Gary Jackson is a towering figure in the Colorado legal landscape and has been for 50 years. After graduating from the University of Colorado School of Law in 1970, Judge Jackson served as the only black deputy district attorney in Colorado before becoming the only black assistant U.S. attorney in the entire 10th Circuit from 1974 to 1976. In 1971, Judge Jackson and six other trailblazing black lawyers formed the Sam Carey Bar Association for the support of and exchange of ideas by African-American lawyers in the state of Colorado. Judge Jackson left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1976 to form his own firm, which he successfully ran for 37 years before being appointed to the bench of the Denver County Courts. The many accolades and honors earned by Judge Jackson tell only part of the story of this great man. Linda Moss and Mallory Revel sat down with Judge Gary Jackson to hear about his life, his influences, including his deep connection to historic Lincoln Hills, and his perspectives on maintaining grace and civility while taking principled stands throughout his career. Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Coombe Curry Rich and Jarvis, and I have with me Mallory Revel, who's a criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kellisher. Well, uh, Judge Gary Jackson, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us this afternoon. And we'd love to talk with you just about your experience as an attorney and your life. The very first thing I would love to ask you about is Lincoln Hills. Tell us a little bit about what Lincoln Hills is. Well, Lincoln Hills is an historic black community that was developed back in about 1922. It was developed by two black real estate developers who purchased about 100 acres of property that at that time was sort of desolate because of the gold and silver mining up there. But their intent was to create a um, community that black people could buy cabins, that black black people could recreate. Uh, It ended up in 1926, uh, Winks Hamlet, built a six-room, basically mountain lodge in which black people from all over the country would come to that mountain lodge and stay between, let's say, May, Memorial Day to Labor Day. And, And I say that because the weather conditions were harsh up there. The roads were dirt roads. And the only way it was passable to get to Winks Lodge Uh, was by a dirt road, and that would be basically between Memorial Day and Labor Day. During that same period of time, my great-grandfather also purchased three lots in the Lincoln Hills area and built uh, three cabins. Uh, Two of the cabins were for relatives. One of the cabins he rented out or he sold. And so my family has been going to Lincoln Hills since 1926, Wow. We have a cabin there that's called the Zephyr View Cabin, 
It is uh, located on a mountainside overlooking the South Boulder Creek and overlooking the railroad that traverses from Denver to California. And on that railroad uh, traveled uh, the uh, Zephyr, uh, uh, the California Zephyr. And so we named our cabin Zephyr View uh, uh, after the uh, train that would uh, go from Denver to California. When we, when we talk about the cabin, it was built in 1926. So I started going up to the cabin in 1945. And Lincoln Hills is about five miles to the east of Netherlands and about two miles to the west of Pinecliff. So it's located between Pinecliff and Netherlands on Highway 72. That's an amazing area. So tell me a little bit about your personal experience of going to the cabin. Well, as a young child, the, the personal experience would be that uh, we'd probably go to the cabin about every other weekend during the summer. So for us, it was a uh, second home. It was a place to uh, sort of vacation for us as uh, children. We would uh, uh, fish. We would skip rocks across the creek. We would uh, walk around the mountainside. When I became a teenager, I got my Red Rider BB gun. And so I had a BB gun that I could shoot at rocks and, and uh, other moving objects, chipmunks, uh, squirrels. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, really, it was, it was just a place to, uh, uh, to frolic as, as a child and as a teenager and uh, a place to uh, go away on the weekends. Did you visit the Winx Lodge as a young person? You know, I didn't because Winx Lodge operated from 1926 until 1965. So in 65, I would have been um, 20 years of age. Um, it was a it was an establishment, Winx Lodge and Winx Tavern. That the, that the tavern, you had to be 21 years of age to go into the tavern because they served alcohol. So there was really not an occasion uh, that I actually went into the lodge uh, or into the tavern until I became an adult and I became involved with the restoration of, of Wink's Lodge. And I became involved in that restoration of the lodge in about 2007 when I joined the board of the James Beckworth Mountain Club, and that was a uh, urban mountain club that purchased the lodge because of its black history. Um, I understand that the Lincoln Hills cabin has played a role in your adult life as well. Well, it has. Uh, it has, uh, and I can talk about it uh, really being a place that uh, starting in law school, um, I would go up there, uh, I would study up there, I would study for the bar examination uh, at the cabin. Uh, when I became a young lawyer and uh, we formed the Sam Carey Bar Association in 1971, uh, we would have retreats up at the, uh, at the cabin. And I'd have to say that uh, until present day, 
I've got a group of about four or five friends. We annually go to the cabin for what we call a constitutional law retreat, where we go to the cabin and spend the weekend, and we talk about various issues and uh, just enjoy ourselves over the weekend. One of the real fun events that we had at the cabin was in 2008, and this was uh, after the Democratic uh, National Convention. Uh, when Obama was uh, nominated to, to be uh, the Democratic nominee for president, we had a, a gathering up at the cabin where we had probably 50 or 60 delegates from across wow. the nation that came to the cabin and enjoyed uh, the Colorado mountains. And we had a barbecue and we celebrated uh, uh, President Obama's uh, nomination uh, to be president. That's amazing. So... It's my understanding that you have a sign in your cabin that says colored restroom only above the bathroom. Can you tell me the importance of that? Well, the importance of it is to never forget where we came from. My great grandfather migrated from uh, Missouri in 1922. He migrated from Missouri to Colorado. He came uh, initially uh, to visit a brother that had suffered a World War I injury, and he was in the VA hospital. But upon arriving in Colorado and seeing what he believed to be better opportunities for black people in Colorado than the way it was in the segregated South, uh, he ended up buying property in the North Sherry Creek area, buying property up in Lincoln Hills. One of the... uh, one of the items that he brought from Missouri was this colored only sign. And this was a a sign uh, that he had to live with uh, growing up and being an adult in Missouri and being uh, uh, under the, under the, you know, auspices of the segregated South. Uh, He brought that uh, particular sign to Colorado and uh, that sign has been over our bathroom since 1926. In 1926, it was an outhouse that that sign was in the outhouse. Uh, when we got running water and a bathroom inside the cabin, probably in about the 50s or 60s, we put that sign over the uh, bathroom in the cabin. So it's a, uh, it's a reminder of uh, how life uh, was and uh, a reminder of the type of uh, obstacles that uh, my great-grandfather and grandparents had to overcome. And Judge Jackson, I know that you had the opportunity to see John Lewis speak um, as a young man. I'm sure you've heard that quote about getting into good trouble. When you were growing up, what did good trouble mean to you? Well, let me just tell you that when John Lewis uh, did his speech at the March on Washington in 1963, he was 23 years of age. I was 17 years of age at the time. I was starting my first year of college at the University of Redlands. And for me, um, John Lewis has been an inspiration since 1963. And to me, good trouble is that type of trouble where you basically 
do what you can to overcome the different barriers and obstacles that people of color are confronted with. And whether that be the obstacles like my grandfather faced in uh, Missouri or the obstacles that uh, exist in Colorado. Um, as we all know, in Colorado, uh, starting in the 20s, the governmental systems were run by the KKK. So although uh, uh, my great-grandfather felt that uh, Colorado had more opportunities than Missouri, there were still those uh, aspects of segregation and discrimination and lack of opportunities, both employment-wise and educational-wise, existing in Colorado. And for me, good trouble is uh, trying to overcome those barriers, uh, getting over those fences of uh, discrimination that, uh, that have been erected here in Colorado. So let's talk about the beginning of your legal career. Um, first, what motivated you to go to law school? Well, in 1964, I transferred from the University of Redlands to the University of Colorado. Uh, the very first person I met on the University of Colorado campus was Sonny Flowers. Sonny Flowers at the time was 18 years old, uh, African-American, lived in Boulder, Colorado, and both of his parents were lawyers. And um, there was a parent weekend. Uh, his parents, uh, by the way, uh, separated or divorced uh, when Sonny was uh, a young child. So his dad lived in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Uh, his dad was uh, a iconic uh, civil rights lawyer in Arkansas, being very involved in the desegregation effort in Arkansas. He was also uh, one of the very first or early presidents of the National Bar Association. He was president in 1953. And the National Bar Association is the association that was created because black lawyers could not be members of the American Bar Association. So when Sonny's father came to Boulder on a parents weekend to visit, uh, I met him. I was so impressed with him and the work that he was doing in Arkansas that I changed my major from being an engineer to being a lawyer. So it was Sonny's father, as well as his mother, who was a lawyer and had, had two other uh, doctorate degrees that influenced me to become a lawyer. And so it was the two of them were the first lawyers that I had ever met. That's amazing. And I'd love to uh, segue briefly away from our timeline for a moment. Can you tell me who Sonny Flowers was to you? Well, Sonny was a friend of 56 years. So we were um, roommates together for several years in college. Uh, we had an apartment together. He and I uh, entered law school the same year in 1967. When we entered law school at CU, we were one of three black students uh, in the law school in 1967. So uh, what I can say about Sonny is that our careers paralleled each other. 
when he graduated from law school, he became a deputy district attorney in Adams County. I, be, I uh, was a deputy district attorney in Denver. Uh, when he left the DA's office in Adams County, he went into private practice. Uh, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in Colorado, I went into private practice. So uh, our careers paralleled each other uh, and our lives paralleled each other for 56 years. So um, Sonny and I uh, were members of the Sam Carey Bar Association together. We were members of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar together. We were members of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association together. I became president of the American Board of Trial Advocates in about 2010. Sonny followed me as president in 2011. Uh, he also followed me as president of the Sam Carey Bar Association. I was president of that association in 1990. He became president in 1991. So the simple way that I can say or speak about Sonny is that uh, for 56 years, uh, we had each other's back. And uh, uh, it was a 56-year friendship that uh, ended because in January of this year, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he passed away in, uh, on July 29th. And I, was, um, I participated in the CU Alumni Awards the other day and heard a tribute about him, and it was, he sounded like an amazing person. Thank you much, and we did that together also. I uh, uh, had received the George Norlin Award. Sonny uh, subsequently also got the George Norlin Award. And uh, while in law school, I got the highest uh, award from the law school, which is called the Nels Award. And as you saw, Sonny got Private Practitioner of the Year uh, just this year, and I had the opportunity to uh, uh, be involved in a video tribute to Sonny. And so you mentioned the Sam Carey Bar Association a couple of times. Can you tell us about the importance of the Sam Carey Bar Association to the Colorado legal community? Well, the importance is, is that we were the vanguards of all specialty bar associations. So we were formed in 1971. There were seven of us that were the founding members of the Sam Carey Bar Association. In 1971, there were approximately 18, 18 black lawyers and judges throughout the state. So the forming of the Sam Curry Bar Association was for the purpose of networking, where the seven of us could come together on a monthly basis and talk about what we were doing with our careers. But it was also a necessary organization that what we wanted to do was to make sure that there were equal and additional opportunities for black lawyers and judges. In 1971, there were no black professors. In 1971, there was only one black associate on 17th Street in 1971. Um, and so, uh, the Sam Carey Bar Association became basically a social action group to try and create change in Colorado and more opportunities for black attorneys. 
Subsequently, after the forming of the Sam Curie Bar Association, the Hispanic Bar Association uh, formed a year or two later. Uh, a few years after that, the Women's Bar Association formed, I believe, in about 1976. And then after that, uh, APABA, the Asian Pacific American Bar Association formed, the South Asian Bar Association, and then the uh, LBGTQ Bar Association was formed. So in reality, um, the Sam Carey Bar Association was the vanguard of all the specialty bar associations here in Colorado. And to me, that is one of the importance of that association because each of those specialty bars have made such an impact on our legal profession here in Colorado. Sure, it's paved the way for more diverse attorneys to really have an avenue to make themselves known in, in the Colorado um, legal field. And you mentioned there being one black associate on 17th Street. You were the one black deputy district attorney in Denver. Can you talk to us about your experience early on in your career in that role in the Denver DA's office? Well, that that occurred uh, uh, about 1969. That was the start. In 1969, I was hired as a legal intern by Mike McEvitt, who was the DA. Uh, we had three colleagues. Uh, there were three other colleagues that were hired at the same time. So there were uh, uh, four of us that were interns in the Denver District Attorney's Office in 1969. Uh, in those days, uh, the Denver District Attorney's Office was the most prestigious uh, prosecuting office uh, in the state. It was so prestigious that we as interns were actually photographed uh, when we were sworn in as interns um, by one of the Denver County Court judge. That photograph uh, was pictured in the Denver Post in October of 1969. So it was a photograph of me with my three colleagues. Uh, at the time in 1969, I had a probably a three or four inch Afro hairdo. And uh, in that photograph, uh, that Afro hairdo was very, very prominent. I can say that uh, within a few days of that photograph being pictured um, in the Denver Post, I got an anonymous letter. That anonymous letter was sent to me, and I've got it in front of me right now, but that anonymous letter reads, this hairdo is a disgrace to you, your school, and certainly the DA's office. So that was uh, in one way, a, a welcome to the legal community that I received from at least one anonymous person. Approximately, approximately a week later, there was an editorial comment made by one of the justices of the Supreme Court, where he wrote an editorial comment uh, to the Denver Post that he too felt that my appearance was a disgrace to the district attorney's office. Um, so that was my second welcome to the um, Denver legal community. And that's, that's during my uh, third year of law school and during the first week that I was working for the Denver district attorney's office. In response to that editorial comment, my mother, who has always been one of my strongest advocates, 
uh, wrote a letter back to the Supreme Court Justice, uh, basically advising her that uh, I should be judged by my grades, by my work performance at the district attorney's office, and not by my hairdo. To the credit of that Supreme Court Justice, he called me and my mother up. He invited uh, the two of us over to the Supreme Court. Uh, we met with him. He apologized to me and my mother, uh, invited us to go to lunch with him that day. And when we talk about how the world is round, approximately 25 years later, uh, that Supreme Court Justice's grandson, who's a lawyer, had an ethical problem where he had to go before the presiding disciplinary judge. He hired me to represent him as his lawyer in order to keep his license. Wow. So uh, that is a demonstration of how the world is round and how one person's uh, uh, what I would call uh, ignorance of my abilities changed and changed to the degree that 20 years later, his grandson uh, uh, hired me to represent him as a lawyer. That's an amazing change. And out of curiosity, do you keep that note on your desk at all times or is that just there for the interview? <laughs> I keep that note uh, always as a, uh, a piece of inspiration. I can tell you that my mother, who's 95 years of age uh, and has uh, been scrapbooking me for 50 years, keeps the same photograph and note as well as all other memorabilia that I've collected over 50 years. At 95, she's still my uh, strongest advocate. <laughs> It sounds like your family is very dedicated to memorializing not only achievements, but also obstacles that you've overcome. Well, I, I would have to say that when I look at uh, mentors that I've had in my life, uh, there have been an, a number of mentors, but my greatest mentors and, uh, and supporters have been members of my family. My mother had seven brothers and sisters, so I had six uh, uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, my father had a, a number of brothers. Uh, uh, and so my biggest supporters have always been family members. And Judge Jackson, I'm truly struck by the grace and civility it must have taken to accept a lunch invitation from someone who attacked you so baselessly. And so publicly. And so publicly, exactly. Um, for nothing, no other reason than your race. Civility is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, both in the legal profession and generally in 2020. Where did you find the strength to have that grace and civility, and what lessons can we learn from that? You know, I think that uh, when you ask that question regarding civility. Um, my grandparents, uh, and I haven't spoken about my grandmother. My grandmother, uh, too, was raised in Missouri. She received her 
bachelor's degree from a black college, an historic black college in 1917 in education. So education has always been important in, in, in our family's life. When she moved here to Colorado with my grandfather, and, and we talked about that being somewhere around 1926, despite having that college degree, she uh, was not hired to be a teacher or an educator because uh, of discrimination here in Colorado. She ended up being a, a dietitian at the VA's hospital and did that for a year. But I think both my grandmother and grandfather, my grandfather who, once again, because of his race, um, uh, for most of his life, worked in the packing house. Uh, and when you think about a packing house, a, a slaughterhouse, that's at the lowest end of the totem pole in terms of, uh, of, of the type of hard work that a, a person has to do. But my grandmother and grandfather uh, believed in education. They believed in the value of property. So they owned a home in North Cherry Creek. They owned a home up in uh, Lincoln Hills. And they impressed upon me with uh, the value of education. I think with education, you learn uh, how to react to uh, adverse things in an educated way. I uh, grew up with uh, watching the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and with uh, John Lewis. Uh, with people like Whitney Young, the National Urban League. And I think I learned from those individuals how you react to hostile people, uh, people that are uh, hostile and aggressive and, and uh, even using terror. Uh, you learn how to react in a manner in which you channel your anger and attempt to react in a civil and direct and uh, in a way to get the type of results that you're looking for. That's powerful. And I know that you've said previously that none of the criticism you received affected your confidence as a young attorney. And I think that that is also amazing because that's a constant battle that young attorneys have. And so we understand how you maintained grace. Do you have any additional advice for maintaining confidence as a young attorney in the light of fairly baseless uh, criticism? You know, the confidence, once again, comes from family. Uh, my dad, my mom, my grandparents, uncles and aunts have always impressed upon me that I could do anything that I wanted to do, that I might have to work harder than some, but that uh, I could do what I wanted to do. And, uh, and uh, to me, the confidence comes from, first of all, preparation. You know, I have always felt that uh, when I go into a trial, whether that be as a district attorney or a U.S. attorney or in private practice, or even now as a judge, that if you are prepared, that gives you confidence. So preparation is, is, is a key. Competence is uh, 
is, is to me, um, something that you learn over time. Uh, I can't say that uh, uh, when I first went away to college, that that I was uh, that I was competent. Uh, I think that uh, as you grow and mature, and uh, you you obtain success in things that you do, your competence grows, and so. Uh, uh, the competence that I may be showing right now uh, may not have been the same competence that I had uh, when I was 24 years old, uh, but uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a growing process uh, uh, to to feel confident in yourself. Awesome, and I'd love to hear about some of the people who shaped you as a young attorney. So let's talk about um, Judge Weinshank and. I apologize. Is that how you say her name? Yeah, that's that's correct. Her name was the Honorable Zeta Weinshank, and um, she was one of my early uh, mentors. Uh, Judge Weinshank is is an historic figure here in Colorado because she uh, graduated from Harvard um, probably four or five years ahead of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So she was a predecessor to uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at Harvard. And so uh, Judge Weinshank was tops in her class. When she came uh, to Colorado for employment after graduating from Harvard, because she was a woman, because she was Jewish, she could not get a job uh, with either a large or medium-sized law firm and ended up uh, being uh, selected as a, at a very early age uh, as a judge in the Denver Municipal Court. At that time when she was selected, she was the first full-time woman judge in the state of Colorado. And so um, I, uh, when I became uh, a deputy district attorney, I was assigned to her courtroom. And it's kind of interesting if we look back at that and as I look back at it, the only woman judge in Denver I was the only black deputy district attorney. I got assigned to her courtroom. Today, we might call that uh, unconscious bias by whoever did the assignment. We might call it implicit bias. Uh, we might call it uh, a direct uh, consciousness of what was happening in terms of my assignment. But from my perspective, it was a stroke of good luck uh, because I worked basically in front of her on a daily basis for nine months. I tried cases in front of her, uh, jury trials, trials to the court for a nine month period of time. She was uh, an intellect. She was, uh, had compassion. She was kind and uh, she uh, welcomed me into her courtroom. She uh, uh, helped me through her tutelage and through her rulings in the courtroom, gained my skills as a trial lawyer. So being assigned to her was a good fortune because she ended up going on to the district court of, of Colorado, being the first woman district court judge, and then being the first woman U.S. district court judge, first federal uh, court judge in Colorado. So for me, it was good fortune. She was one of my early uh, early mentors. 
Can you think of one of the greatest or most important things that you learned from her while you were in her courtroom? That's real easy. Professionalism. How did she teach that? She was always professional. She carried herself with dignity. She was confident and she was prepared. Those are the things I learned from her. And as a young trial lawyer, I learned more from the judges that I was appearing in front of than even my own colleagues. Having that experience of learning from such a great judge, have you felt an obligation once you're on the bench to influence, in a very proper way, the next generation of trial lawyers? Well, that's one of the beauties of being on the Denver County Court, is on the Denver County Court uh, every single day. I have young prosecutors, I have young public defenders, I have young attorneys. Uh, the Denver County Court is probably the court in which uh, most people have their first experience being in a courtroom setting. And so that includes lawyers, that includes citizens, that includes uh, various types of lay people that are coming in maybe even to be a juror. And I think that one of the responsibilities that we have as a county court judge is that we look at it as being a teaching court. I've always told the attorneys, whether they be young or old, that after a trial is over, if they want to come back into chambers and talk about uh, any aspect of the trial to help with their professional growth, uh, my door is open for that. You know, that happened uh, for me uh, both as a deputy district attorney, and we've talked about Judge Weinshank, but there were, there were others, uh, other judges that welcomed me into their chambers, welcomed me into their courtroom, would uh, advise me regarding trial strategy. And so there were people like Judge Flanagan, who was our first black judge that was uh, appointed in 1957 as a Denver County Court judge. He became our first district, our first black district court judge in 1966. And then when I went over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, uh, the judges there, uh, people like uh, Sherman Feinsilver uh, was a judge that uh, was instrumental in my career. Judge Richard Mache, who was involved in, the, in the, the Oklahoma City bombing trial, was a uh, judge that uh, mentored me and would provide trial tips to me. Uh, there were uh, uh, other judges such as, uh, uh, and the name is slipping my mind right now since it goes back to 1976, but there were other federal court judges that uh, uh, helped me with my trial skills. I'd like to get into where the Colorado legal community can still go and can still improve. So I know that you've um, stated recently that you think Colorado's law schools should be making more of an effort to bring in more diverse classes. And I'd love to hear from you what additional efforts and um, what else Colorado schools can be doing to bring in a more diverse class and bring more diverse attorneys to the Colorado legal community? Let me just say that um, I'm a proud 
graduate of the CU Law School. And um, I have uh, been involved with the CU Law School in terms of its efforts for diversity for now 50 years. I, I want to applaud the CU Law School for its uh, recent initiative that was unrolled about a month ago in terms of its efforts to uh, uh, deal with uh, the systemic barriers that are within our legal system. Uh, Dean Anaya has rolled out a program for uh, CU Law School. A part of that program, of course, is to have more diverse students at the law school. CU this year has its largest percent of students of color that they've ever had in its history, and that's 37%. And so I applaud them uh, with, that with that particular effort. I have a personal goal in a law class of 175, and that's the typical uh, first year law class at CU. My personal goal is to see that there are 10 black students out of that 175. And so that's a personal aspiration that I have. Uh, I have that aspiration because in my opinion, and if we look at history, it has been uh, the black community. It has been at the forefront of all the civil rights activities that have, uh, that have assisted and supported are other diverse groups, whether they be women, Latinos, uh, uh, handicapped. It has been the black community that has been at the forefront. I want that to remain the same in terms of the black community being at the forefront. And that's why I have an aspiration and a goal as long as I'm helping uh, in this effort at CU is to see where we get to the point of having 10 black law students in the incoming class. Thank you so much, Judge Jackson, for everything that you've shared with us today. It has truly been a pleasure for both of us to hear more about your stories and your experience and how you and others truly have paved the way for so many of us. And for that, we'll be forever grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Jackson. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed. This is my first podcast, so uh, it's a uh, uh, a positive experience for me. I appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarty. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.